0: Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week we explore the beliefs shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and frankly, influencing the way that we make sense of the events that are taking place all around us. A few weeks ago, I started noticing a number of articles with a similar headline and citing some, well, questionable data. I first spotted it in the Christian Post. It's an editorial with a startling headline, Who Are the Innocent Palestinians? It's one of a series that led me down a rabbit hole. And this particular one was written by an American-born Israeli settler who identifies as Orthodox and runs ministries to build Christian evangelical support for the state of Israel. Since the 1940s, The religious political movement, known as Christian Zionism, includes many organizations and voices. It's a movement that Christian theologian, author, and occasional preacher Kelly Nikondeha understands on a personal level.
1: I was born into what was a Catholic family, but early on, my parents then moved into a Christian, evangelical, non-denominational church. And so much of my formation happened in these Christian, evangelical spaces. The phrase she heard most often was the Holy Land. Very seldom was it ever Israel. Never did I hear Palestine. It was always the Holy Land. When I got older, after college i uh, picked up a book on the modern middle east i was so surprised that there were other people palestinian people that also were in the land i mean it was like oh there's these there's a whole people group that i never ever heard in my growing up and i really felt the need to write that wrong <laughs> you know to make sure that i never erased them when i spoke of the region the way that they were erased from My childhood. Like I was never given that. But my children obviously know the stories. They know Palestinian men and women. They, you know, um, I want to make sure that they are not invisible in the stories that I tell. But they certainly were invisible in my childhood.
0: Mm. For three decades, Nikonde has been traveling to the region, building relationships and writing about the people she meets with the hope that American Christians like herself and her children have a different story than the one she heard growing up. In October 2022, her book, Advent in Palestine, was published by Broadleaf, an imprint of 1517 Media. This year, she's being called to help Christian congregations revisit the stories they heard growing up around the Advent season, along with the ones they might have missed. On December 3rd, she was standing in a pulpit, guest preaching to a community that is, like many of us, trying to make sense of the biblical stories invoked during the season of Advent. She joins me on our studio line to share her experience and the journey that led her to write about Advent in Palestine and what she found when she stood in front of that congregation. Kelly, Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to share a conversation with
0: you today. Kelly, I'm so interested in hearing about your experience this past weekend. So it is Advent, and for Christians who observe, tell us again, for those of us who are not within the tradition, what is Advent? I'm suspecting... Many people think about like I do, you know, the season is coming when you go to the grocery store and you look to the left or the right and you see, and I confess, uh, Advent calendars. In fact, I almost picked up one because it had little treats and goodies in it, not just for the family, but also for our our canine friends. There's this commercial treatment of Advent. There's also a spiritual and religious um, uh, undercurrent to the story that can sometimes get lost in the rush to Christmas and the holiday giving that so many of us associate with this time of year.
1: Well, you have named one of my sore spots when it comes to advent. Uh, but first, advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Our Christian tradition holds that Jesus was born on Christmas or Christmas Eve. And so the four weeks leading up to that are a time of celebrating or preparing, would be a better word, preparing for that arrival. And so this is the time when we read from our New Testament the stories that Matthew and Luke, the gospel writers, have given us about the birth of Jesus. And we reflect on those stories. We look for signs of hope, joy, light. Um... These are the themes you will typically hear as the church celebrates these four weeks in preparation for the arrival of Christmas and the Christ child. Now, as you mentioned, this has been incredibly commercialized um, over the last set of years. And like just like you said, I go into the grocery store, I go online, and everybody seems to have some kind of curated Advent calendar marking the time you know, to to the holiday, but I often think of it as a twin to the season of Lent, which is where people in my tradition observe 40 days leading up to the Easter, you know, the recognition of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is a time, you know, when we are dark and penitent, um, thinking about forgiveness, etc. And this seems to be that opposite season where we're looking towards, as I said, joy and hope and looking for signs of God in a dark world. But often it has become um, kind of more magical and light and people talking about wanting gentleness and rest, which is so at odds with the actual Advent stories that my tradition has preserved. I understand you are an occasional preacher And
0: you are often, especially around this time of year, preaching and engaging and having
1: those conversations. Tell me a little bit about what you found this past week. I was invited to speak at a local congregation in a huge retirement community out here in Arizona. And they just said, come and talk to us about Advent in Palestine. And given what is happening in Palestine and very specifically in Gaza right now, I mean, I felt the weight of that invitation. And, and I was so curious, are these people going to expect me to give them a message of hope? Are they going to expect me to leave them feeling good at the end of this sermon? Because if I want to be faithful to the story that I'm going to be preaching um, out of the Gospel of Matthew— um it's a very dark story um uh, it is the story of Herod who was the basically he was the king of the region of Palestine at the time he was the one who controlled the military and the economy and he was under Caesar you know the Roman emperor but really he ran the show in Palestine in the 1st century and this story is of Herod killing the innocent children in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions as he was searching for the one singular Christ child. And I was like, how do I preach that and not be honest about what was happening in Bethlehem in the first century and what is happening today in Gaza? That is not a feel-good sermon. That is not I'm not set up to leave people feeling happy when they walk out. Mm. But I felt really that the call to be faithful to both the, the story that I had been given and the people that I so love and care for in the region. And so I took it as an opportunity to say, here are the dynamics of imperial violence. This is what it looked like in the first century when Herod did it. And it looks so similar to what we see happening um, when the state of Israel, with the support of the U.S., does it in Gaza. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to say from the pulpit. But I felt like I owed it to the people in Palestine to speak the truth and that this is what violence does. You know, in the day, Herod could have been very, very focused. Uh, He had an amazing surveillance apparatus for the time he was famous for it Uh, this was a very small village he was looking for a singular child it wouldn't have been difficult with his resources Mm. but of course the story says nope he went in bethlehem all the surrounding villages right that violence accelerated it grew and all the children, of course, a little hyperbole there, but the story is that all these children and many family members who were trying to protect them uh, were were slaughtered. Mm. And to me, the resonance with what's happening in Gaza, that with all of our technology and military might and talk about precision equipment, it doesn't look like anybody is trying to be precise, When it comes to what is happening in Gaza, Um, it just looks like violence keeps growing and growing. I think the thing I tried to leave this community with was the invitation to enter into lament with the people in the Holy Land. Uh, Even whether you are in Israel or in any part of Palestine, the grief is pretty deep in both communities. But I also really asked this group of mainly octogenarians. They were almost all in their, I would say, 70s or 80s. You're
0: describing the challenge that many churches have. Older Mm. congregations who may have different memories and experiences and thinking about um, the story not only of Advent, but also about the U.S.-Israel relationship. You were presenting a
1: pretty intense contrast. How did they respond to you? Well, the wonderful thing is that this congregation had already started doing some of the work. They had already started making connections with, you know, what is the real story happening, trying to understand the Palestinian narratives and the people there. So, you know, what I ask them is to really listen to your grandkids and your great gang- grandkids this holiday. Because the younger generations are coming in with actually a much better awareness about the dynamics of colonization and apartheid and ethnic cleansing, they see with a clarity that I think clouds clouds our vision as we age, because as you said, we have different stories that we grew up with. We had different sermons preached to us growing up, but this younger generation sees differently. And I really encourage them to not shut down Their grandkids, when they share what they're thinking and seeing regarding Israel and Palestine, but to listen and to maybe even follow their lead. Um, and I was so surprised. I was, I kind of steeled myself a little bit for, for that moment when, you know, you have to stand at the door and say goodbye to everybody. And they tell you, you either preached a really good sermon or or they tell you where they think you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I knew you cannot talk about Israel and Palestine without hearing pushback. And what I, I was so surprised, what I heard was, thank you for giving me a better perspective before I sit with my grandkids this holiday. Or one of them was telling me, my grandson has already started telling me some of this, and we've been watching TikTok videos together. And He's been helping me, like, change my language and understand. Like, I was surprised at how receptive they were. Um, I was, I was grateful, but I was surprised that no, I didn't get any negative comment.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Advent in Palestine, the relationships that shape how you see and understand what is unfolding in real time. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, I'm Breen Khan. We'll be back after this short break with Kelly Nikondeha. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, my guest this week is Kelly Nicondeja. She is the author of Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. She's also the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and of Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Nikondeha travels between the southwest of the United States, Burundi in East Africa, and the Middle East often. In her writing, her belief about embodied justice and liberation theology comes through, along with her experiences and relationships doing community development work. These lessons find their way into sermons that she'll deliver, especially during the Advent season. Nikondeha is an occasional Christian preacher, before the break, she described the reaction of preaching to a congregation of mostly octogenarians based in a retirement community in Arizona. Her message echoes her writing style, weaving back and forth between the biblical history of the past and its relevance to the present. Let's get back to the conversation.
1: Kelly Nikundeha, what is your connection to the Holy Land? As somebody who has grown up in the Christian tradition, we definitely have a connection to the Holy Land. You know, many of our holiest sites are there. And so I think for me, I grew up with these stories. And they were in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Samaria, and Sepphoris and all these different places were part of what I read. In my Bible, what I studied as a student of the Bible and when I went on to become a theologian, and this is the terrain that matches my text. As I got older, I started to realize, oh, there are some political dynamics afoot. And so then I started to actually read and educate myself um, beyond the Bible that I grew up with and looking at what is actually happening
0: Tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey.
1: Well, I was born into what was a Catholic family. But early on, my parents then moved into a Christian, evangelical, non-denominational church. And so much of my formation Happened in these Christian evangelical spaces, uh, so that is where I came from.
0: <laughs> wow! And how did it, growing up? How did how how did you learn about you know the present day Israel and and mm-hmm. Palestine or or the occupied Palestine Palestinian territories?
1: I heard about the Holy Land. Very seldom did, was it ever. Israel never did I hear Palestine. It was always the Holy Land. and it was usually in the context of going to the Holy Land for that once in a lifetime trip, um, which ironically, I never was interested in growing up. <laughs> that was that didn't entice me. but that's what you know, the Holy Land and that's where the Jewish people are and that's where Jesus grew up. So when I got older, um, after college, picked up a book on the Middle East the modern Middle East, I was so surprised that there were other people, Palestinian people, that also were in the land. I mean, it was like, oh, there's this there's a whole people group that I never ever heard in my growing up. And I really felt the need to write that wrong, (laughs) you know, to make sure that I never erased them when I spoke of the region, the way that they were erased from My childhood, like I was never given that, but my children obviously know the stories. They know Palestinian men and women. They, you know, um, I want to make sure that they are not invisible in the stories that I tell. But they certainly were invisible in my childhood. Then I started studying the political modern political realities. That's when I started to realize, oh wait a minute, there are Palestinian people. I always knew there were Jewish people, but I didn't realize, oh, there are Palestinian people. And to start to really pay attention to what was happening, I've been a student of the region for over thirty years. Mm. Um, I've now traveled there and you know spent time there. but I also have deep friendships with Messianic Jewish friends, Christian friends, um, Muslim friends who live in the West Bank, East and West Jerusalem. Uh, in the north of Israel. And so those relationships have also really deepened my understanding of what it is uh, to call this place home and to, to struggle with these realities on the ground. What is a Messianic Jew? A Messianic Jew is a Jewish person who has embraced Jesus. And so they hold to both their Jewish practice and elements of Christianity Um, making them a a bit of a hybrid, you know, straddling these two communities.
0: Hmm. Kelly, you shared earlier that you have members of your family who very much still identify as Christian Zionists and believe that it is critical to support the political state of Israel for biblical reasons. Families like yours and mine and many, I imagine, of our listeners are diverse and not a monolith. Yours is no exception. But you're a public scholar and a writer talking openly and challenging what they believe. How do they react to your work?
1: I have uh, some family members that are willing to sit and ask questions. But most of my family members just believe that I'm I'm wrong and that I'm going against the Bible and that I'm, uh, you know, they don't want to hear what I have to say.
0: I'm sorry that must be painful.
1: And it is. Mainly because they're they're not seeing people that I hold dear, mm-hmm. that I would love to introduce them to and have added richness and beauty to my life and my understanding, but they you know, and sadly that is a lot of what's happening in evangelical spaces is you know, they're taught you know, we're supposed to we're supposed to support Israel and um they believe that the people in the, you know, in the Bible, Israel in the Bible is the same as the modern state of Israel. And those two things alone make it very difficult sometimes uh, to have really good conversations. Um, but every now and then, like I said, I have one family member who's open and wants to have longer conversations. And I am grateful for those.
0: I have to ask, have you been in touch with your friends and colleagues and folks that you've built and developed relationships with over the time of your travels?
1: My one girlfriend who, uh, she lived here in Arizona, uh, and we had several years where we were able to be together, you know, raising our kids and getting to know each other as girlfriends do. And then she and her family went back to the West Bank uh, to at some point. And so she is now in the thick of the West Bank, which mm. we don't talk as much about that because so much of the focus is on what is happening in Gaza. And I understand. But her and I check in, I mean, daily. I'm like, even if you only give me an emoji, if you only have the energy to give me one symbol, just like as a sign of life, as a proof of life, uh, because they, she is living in deep fear. Uh, they are having soldiers coming and doing night raids and taking boys and men out of the homes. Mm. You know, she says it's too dangerous to go and get groceries. If you're on the roads, you get shot by the soldiers. If you're on the pathways, the footpaths, she says you are a target for the settlers that are around them. So she's like, I'm actually baking bread every day. And, and my friend does not love baking but she said it's too dangerous to send my husband or my sons out to get bread. So she's making bread as a security measure for her and her family. So, you know, um, every day that I hear from her, I'm grateful, but every day it seems that she is just telling me another level of what fear and, t- and daily terror looks like. And uh, it's, it breaks my heart. I,
0: uh, I can't imagine what it's like opening up your phone, waiting to see that emoji.
1: Well, and there have been a couple of days where I haven't heard from her for a day or two in a row, and I get really nervous. And I know it's nothing compared to what people in the region are living through. But the sigh of relief when I hear and find out, you know, oh, they just didn't have phone service for the day, or they were trying to harvest some olive trees while they still could, you know, like. Okay, I get it. But man, I'm glad to hear from you and know that for today, you know, you and your husband and your boys are okay. Mm. Kelly, yeah. you're
0: not Arab, you're not Palestinian. Mm. How does that impact the way that you have been taking Advent in Palestine into the world? I have been
1: very reticent, actually, to to self-promote even though you would think that this is the perfect time, it's Advent, people are actually thinking about Palestine. And yet for me, I never want to exploit my friends. I never want to exploit their pain and the precarity with which they are struggling with every single day. And so I think when the events of 10-7 happened, I didn't say anything for a while because my first thing was to make sure that my friends in the region were okay and to make myself available to them and hold space for them to tell me what they need to tell me. Or, you know, I I wanted to care for them first, but at some point I knew I was going to need to, the part of me that wants to be an advocate, that wants to make sure that their stories are heard and their humanity is seen. but. I recognize I am not from the region, and I need to be very careful with how I hold their stories. It was really my girlfriend in uh, in the West Bank that said, listen, I want you to tell them, and she gave me a couple things, please tell them from the pulpit on Sunday this. She wanted people to know that she bakes bread as a security measure. She thought that was important for people to know, like, this may be a simple thing, but this is how scared I am that it has changed the way I feed my family. Mm. She wanted me to tell them that soldiers are coming in the middle of the night and taking men and boys and that every night she goes to bed terrified that she might not see her boys in the morning Mm. and she just wanted people to know like i want to live in peace i have christian friends i have villages not far away where christian palestinians live like i want to be at peace even with my jewish neighbors but right now we are so terrified um and they really can't leave their house and she She just kept saying, tell them that we want peace, but we are so, so deeply frightened. And she's outside of one of the, you know, one of the big cities. She's way out far off the grid. Um, And I had hoped that that would protect her kind of being far away. But, you know, as she said, just a couple nights prior to me preaching, they had reached her village and taken some taken about a half a dozen Uh, young men in the night, and they being the IDF, the Israeli soldiers. But that's what she wanted us to know. She was also saying, you know, it's great that hostages are being released, but as many are being taken in as are being released from the prisons. Mm -hmm. I have been hearing stories of both male and female peacemakers Uh, some in Bethlehem, some from down in Hebron and other areas up north, uh, being, we would say, kidnapped in that they are being taken out of their homes, dragged out of their homes Mm. preemptively. So it's not that they have done anything or were currently doing anything that would have necessarily been provocative, but they are being taken. And you don't know where they're being taken you don't know how long they're going to be held. Um, one is a well-known um, nonviolent practitioner. So this is somebody who believes in nonviolence and teaches nonviolence um, throughout the, you know, uh, his community and was uh, scared into hiding to protect, you know, himself and his family. So, It's really hard to hear that even those that would stand for peace have become targets. Um, Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but it just felt like another hit to the heart. Mm -hmm.
0: You've been getting information about things that are happening that I have not heard of. I'll be candid and honest with you. Like, Are you seeing these stories reflected in the
1: news that we're getting about what's unfolding in the West Bank? No, I don't hear people talking about really what's happening in the West Bank much at all, let alone with the granularity that I hear from my friend, right? I mean, she's the one who's telling me this is what's happening in my village. I mean, we're, we're off the grid and it's happening to us. Um, every now and then I'll hear something like, Oh, there's been some shootings in the West Bank. Like I'll hear something that I'm like, okay, that's what she's been telling me about, but it's it's very infrequent and it's never something that is dialed down on and really explored and i think in part because so much is happening in gaza that that is where most of the the reporting is but things are really difficult in the west bank too
0: yeah, and you mentioned armed israeli settlers that have received assault rifles and the you know deputizing essentially of settlers into Yes. IDF, which is interesting because my understanding is that many settlers do not serve in the IDF. Mm-hmm. I, I want to turn to your book. Your first chapter is titled Silence and Suffering. It, as it takes readers back into that period of oppressive occupation and the experience of
1: suffering, what lesson do you draw today? When I started working on these uh, texts or stories from my tradition, uh, I was looking for more context. And what I found was before you get to these stories about the birth of Jesus, there are actually stories that tell us about generations of imperial violence visited upon the Jewish people. And I realized that what the predicate for the arrival of this, this child that we celebrate in my, as a Christian is that there were generations of, of violence and trauma deep suffering and that that is something that i think pulled me back into the advent story because i would often feel really sad and like almost everybody else was as i said getting their advent calendars and feeling hopeful but i would feel the opposite like this heaviness about well the world doesn't quite seem right even though this child has come to us and when i went back and read the context these generations of of loud you know violence and loss and lament i was like oh that sounds that feels familiar to me and that this is the world that the christ child entered into that this is the backdrop for these stories that my tradition holds dear it's, it's a story of deep trauma and, and that to me, really transformed the way I understood these stories and the way that I think, you know, how one of these kind of primal features of what it is to be human and to t- tell the human story is sadly violence and trauma. And it was there in the first century and it remains a feature um to the lives we're living today, is grappling with um like, I look at Israel and Palestine now, and I think there are two traumatized communities. Both Jewish and Palestinian people, they they have deep traumas that they are wrestling with in their own communities and in their own ways. And I don't know, I just think that that's an, an important thing to recognize as I entered into these stories. How did you write this book? Like, talk to me a little bit about your
0: decision in the way that you structured each chapter because it's different. Mm. It's like reading two parallel stories. It, it was such a mm. different kind of read for me. Um, you're you're really a gifted storyteller. I again, as you know, I mentioned these are not stories that I'm particularly familiar with, but you brought me into them as you, connected like present day experiences to biblical stories with mm. details of context and history, especially during this time of year. Can you talk to our listeners? Can you, can you explain a little bit about how you organized the book and why you chose to do it that way?
1: Sure. Advent has always been a special season for me and I, you know, from loving its high notes, its you know talk of hope and light, but as I've gotten older and I have seen more, I started wrestling with the text a little bit more, um, demanding a little bit more of these stories um up against the realities of the world that I live in and I think that's when I started to take seriously the, the people and the place and the politics of Palestine, both in the first century and now. And there was something about that that, I don't know, it it allowed me to see things that I hadn't previously seen, uh, like suffering and trauma and um, imperial violence, like naming it and seeing that that dynamic and that pattern um, all the way back in the first century up till now um, and it I just felt like so many so many people who like me would have grown up with these stories actually don't know the stories very well. <laughs> they have never taken the the land seriously or the people seriously or the politics seriously to understand that, we are given stories by these two gospel writers that talk about violence and economics and all the things that were pressing upon the actors in these Advent stories. And it actually makes it much richer to to me to read those stories now, because I'm like, oh, they struggled with debt, and we are under economic duress. There are some deep similarities. It just cracked it open for me. And to see real people, to hear about my girlfriend who lives in the West Bank and other friends of mine that live in Bethlehem and, um, other places and hear their stories. Like they're, these are real people. And I tried to do that when I wrote this book to connect what had happened and what is happening, hoping that people would not only see the Bible story better, but would see the people of Palestine maybe for the first time and would never forget them the way that I will never forget them. You said to me when we were talking earlier,
0: Christmas is canceled. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: The patriarchs uh, from the the Christian churches uh, in Jerusalem a couple weeks ago wrote a letter basically saying that they are canceling Christmas. They are not going to do tree lightings parades, all the displays that they traditionally do, that they were taking their energy and shifting it from celebration towards lamentation, really. And there was an invitation for the worldwide church to join them. And and just down the, the road from Jerusalem, down in Bethlehem, in a Lutheran evangelical church, their nativity display this year is underneath rubble, right there in their sanctuary. There is the baby Jesus wrapped in a kafia. There are the different, you know, the, the wise men and all the different players that we normally see in a Christmas scene amid the rubble. And so the patriarchs are telling us that Christmas is canceled. But down in Bethlehem, they are showing us why it's canceled. Because Jesus is under the rubble, like their brothers and sisters and too many of their children in Gaza. And it is, it is hard for me to see a nativity scene, and I see them all over my neighborhood. But I'm like, yeah, I keep thinking of Jesus and under the rubble. I think in my story and in my tradition, that's where the Christ child would be found today. Kelly Nikondeha has degrees
0: in communication studies from Westmont College. She earned her Master's of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary in California. She describes her bicontinental work as part of a lifelong journey of learning, spending significant time in Burundi. She writes that... Quote, among East African leaders, South African thinkers, and Muslim friends. I've come to learn more about the good news and the dangerous ways of Jesus. When we come back, a short conversation with filmmaker Martin Doblemeyer, who directed a documentary about another Christian liberation theologian, Howard Thurman. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. <laughs>